quite pertinent that we're looking at this subject this morning. I had settled on this passage before the events of Israel occurred in recent days, but in verse 13 is my text. Paul says, as it is written, and we know this from Malachi chapter 1, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Dear friends, the Bible is the most wonderful book in the whole world. It is not merely the book that teaches us about God. It is the book of God. Through this book, God is revealed to us. This is inspired. It is from God himself. And the whole of the Bible is profitable to us. That's what Paul said. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So there's not a page, there's not a chapter or a verse that is not profitable to us in our lives. The Bible caters for all ages. It has truths that are so simple that the youngest children are able to understand them. But it also can be profoundly deep at the same time. In one verse you can read something that's very simple and the next you can read a, a verse that will have you thinking and meditating for several weeks to come. Sadly, many people do not study the Bible for many reasons. Some believe it to contain hidden and mysterious things that they will never understand. So they don't even start. They don't even begin and try to read their Bible. Well, Martin Luther his key uh, thinking at the Protestant Reformation was this. Scripture itself is clear and understandable. And so it is. Scripture is clear. It is understandable. What God has revealed to his people, what he has revealed to us, is intelligible. It is understandable. And it is accessible. One ancient writer put it like this. He said, God allowed some obscurity in his word to remind us of our blindness, to encourage us to approach scripture with reverence and with prayer and to stimulate us to more zealously strive for a deeper knowledge of scripture. If we understood it all the first time we read it perfectly, there'd be no need to read it again and again. Up through those difficult passages by rereading them and by studying them and by meditating upon them, we come to a deeper and clearer understanding. Now, there are difficult passages in the Bible. Down through the years, many people have approached me and they've expressed bewilderment and confusion over certain passages. I remember a lecturer at university saying that he had issues with why God allowed the bears uh, to attack the 42 children who mocked Elisha. And for somebody who's just opened the Bible, unlearned of many things, that can be a difficult thing. Some have asked, why does the Bible appear to allow or permit slavery? And another question, our question for today, why did God love Jacob? And why did God hate Esau? There's doctrines in the Bible that we can perhaps initially find difficult to understand. Some people can find it difficult to understand why we are held accountable for Adam's sin. Some can struggle with to what extent do we have free will. But one doctrine that some people struggle with is God's salvation of some and not all. 
This doctrine causes confusion about the person and nature of God and the extent of salvation. But this verse that we're looking at today is an important verse to help us understand the very nature and person of God, but also his dealings with men in this world. So I want to take as my verse for today, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And the title I'm giving to my message is Why God Loves Jacob and Hates Esau. Now there's three headings this morning. I'll give them to you now. The first heading is the longest, just so you're not exasperated by the time we come to the end of the first heading. But the first heading is the historical context of this statement. The second heading, we will define God's hatred. And the third heading, we will define God's love. So first of all, let's examine the historical context of this statement. First of all, who were Jacob and Esau? Well, Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. In Genesis 25, 23, whenever Rebekah was pregnant, she sought the Lord and he revealed to her, he had the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels and the one people shall be stronger than the other people and the elder shall serve the younger. Jacob and Esau were twins. They shared many things in common. They were both born of the same conception. They both entered the world at the same time. Unlike their father Isaac, he had an older brother Ishmael. There was 14 years of difference. But Jacob and Esau came into the world at the same time. They had the exact same upbringing from the same parents. They were schooled together. They were educated together. They were taught to worship God together. Everything they did was together. And they were both sinners. As part of Adam's race, they were both those uh, with sin in their heart and their need of repentance. But here is the main difference between Jacob and Esau. Jacob came to faith in Christ. Jacob became a believer. Jacob repented of his sin and believed in the coming Messiah. Jacob turned and followed the God of his father Isaac and the God of his father Abraham. And the noticeable difference between Jacob and Esau is that Jacob repented and believed. Esau never did. Esau continued in the, with a hard heart of sin, refusing to come to believe in the Lord. And this played out in the life of Esau. He married a heathen woman, much to the dismay of his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And boys and girls, the, the one thing that your mom and dad desire for you more than anything else in the world is that you would follow in the faith of your parents. Just as Isaac and Rebekah were delighted whenever Jacob became a believer, they would have been heartbroken. They would have been utterly tearful. They would have wept that Esau didn't believe in God, that he didn't follow God, that he went and did his own thing. So the main difference between Jacob and Esau is that Jacob came to faith in Christ. But besides these two individuals, the names Jacob and Esau represent two different groups of people. Because Jacob and Esau, they had children, they had descendants and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they ended up with two different tribes of people. So Paul is quoting uh, in Romans 9 from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, Yea, 
I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Matthew Henry notes of this verse. He says, It is said not of Jacob and Esau the person, but the Edomites and the Israelites their posterity. So when God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, he's not speaking specifically about the people, Jacob and Esau. He's speaking about their descendants. He's speaking about the Israelites who came from Jacob. They are loved. But the Edomites who have come from Esau, God has hated. So they are two different nations. Esau is the father of these Edomites. They inhabited the mountainous land known as the mountains of Seir. Now, there was, as we read through the Bible, we see there were frequent hostilities between Israel and Edom. You'll remember, boys and girls, whenever uh, the Israelites left Egypt and they were traveling through the wilderness, they wanted to go through Edom. But the Edomites forbid them. They wouldn't let them pass through the land. They were afraid that they would uh, fight with them and uh, try to take the land. But during the reign of King David in 2 Samuel 8, 14, the land of Edom was conquered by King David and his army. Edom did regain independence during the decline of the Jewish kingdom. But we can notice some great distinctions between the Israelites, the children of Jacob, and the Edomites, the children of Esau. Think of the privileges that Israel had. Israel, the children of Jacob, they had revelations from God. God was speaking to them. He was communicating to them. They were a theocracy. That means they were ruled by God. We are a democracy. We're ruled by votes and uh, popular consensus. But they were ruled by God. God was their supreme ruler. He gave them the laws that they were to live by. They had the tabernacle. They had the temple. They had the holiest of holies. They had the mercy seat. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had prophets who would bring them the word of God directly to them. They had priests who would make sacrifice and intercede for them on their behalf. They had altars to come to. They had judges. They had kings that were given by God. Above all, the children of Israel had a covenant with God. That God would be their God. That he would raise up a Messiah from their own people. Who would be their saviour. Who would die for their sins. Above all the nations in the world. The most blessed people. Were the people who had God. As their covenant God. So Israel had tremendous privileges. But Edom by contrast. They had none of this. God didn't send a prophet to them. He didn't send a messenger to them. He didn't give any revelations to them. The only thing they had was a prophecy of judgment. Ezekiel 25, 13. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand upon Edom and will cut off man and beast from it and I will make it desolate. That's what God promised the Edomites, that he would waste their land, that he would spread them. For 1,700 years, the, the children of, of Esau lived as a, a group of people known as the Edomites. But they didn't love God. 
They didn't worship God. We never see that they came to Israel and said, teach us about your God. Teach us the way of salvation. Teach us of the promised Messiah. If they had have done that, the Lord would have received them. We see many Gentile nations who came and uh, sought forgiveness. We see how... Whenever Jonah preached in Nineveh, there there was revival amongst the Gentiles. If the Edomites had have sought the Lord, he would have received them. But they never did. They had their own false gods. And God brought judgment upon their land. And today, their land is desolate. Their language is forgotten. Their people have disappeared. We know who the children of Jacob are today, but the children of Esau don't exist in the same fashion. So the names Jacob and Esau are pictures of two groups of people. And this is what they represent. Jacob's are the believers and the Esau's are the unbelievers. And dear friend, the world is still divided in that same two groups of people today. God looks down and he, yes, he he might acknowledge the borders. He might acknowledge the nationalities. But God sees two groups of people. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jacobs of this world, and the Esau's, the unbelievers, who don't. But also notice here that God made a covenant promise. But this covenant promise, it was not to the physical seed of Abraham. Yes, there were promises for them. But the covenant that God established with Abraham in Genesis 17 was to the children of Abraham, not by birth, but by faith. If we think about it, very simply, if God's promises, covenant promises, were to the physical descendants of Abraham, they would have included Esau. Esau was a grandson of Abraham. But it didn't uh, apply like that. The context of Romans 9 is this. The promises of God did not mean the salvation of all the physical descendants. Verse 6 of Romans 9. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Verse 8. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And dear friends, this has been the persistent heresy of the Jews for millenniums, believing that they are saved simply by their birthright, by being born as children of Abraham. There were those in the days of our Savior and in the days of the Apostle Paul who trusted in their birth as their salvation. And Paul addressed this subject repeatedly. Galatians 3, verses 26, Paul says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's what Paul says. If you're Christ, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you've repented and believed the gospel, then... You're one of Abraham's children. Abraham was the father of the faithful, of those who had faith. Now in loving Jacob and hating Esau, we also have a prophecy here. God reveals the rejection of Israel. Israel's the firstborn. 
And he prophesies the receiving of the Gentiles. Back to Genesis 25, 23, a very pertinent verse. And the Lord said unto Rebekah, two nations are in thy womb. Two manners of people shall separate from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. So Matthew Henry says here, the choosing of Jacob the younger and preferring him before Esau the elder were to intimate that the Jews, though the natural seed of Abraham and the firstborn of the church, should be laid aside. And the Gentiles, who were as the younger brother, should be taken in their stead and have birthright and blessing. And that's exactly what has happened. If we look throughout history, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before our Saviour was born. And for those 2,000 years, Israel was the firstborn. But then, after the death and resurrection of our Saviour, the Gentile church, the younger church, has replaced the firstborn. That doesn't mean that the Lord has cast off the Jews, that he has forgotten his ancient people. Of course not. If anything, the Bible teaches us that there will be that revival amongst the Jews, the engrafting amongst the Jewish people again. We don't have time to look at all the verses, but one verse, Romans 11, verse 15. For if the casting away of them, that is the Jews, be the reconciling of the world, the Gentile world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So the Jewish people have been cast away for a season that the world might be reconciled. But the receiving of them, that is the engrafting of them again, will be like life from the dead. And we look forward to the day of that fulfillment. This is more than a motion towards individual. When God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. It's more than mere emotional towards these two individuals. It's God showing that there's two groups of people who receive his affections. One receives his love and covenant promise, and the other doesn't. The other doesn't want God's love. The other despises God's love, so is hated by God. We also learn that God does not save by birthright. He doesn't save a Jew just because they've been circumcised, but then end up rejecting the covenant. And likewise, for the baptized child who has been baptized into the faith, but then grows up to reject the covenant, they have turned their back on God. And there's no salvation for them. Or that person who's been born into a Christian home and been brought up with all the blessings and liberties of the gospel, if they turn their back on that, it's not God rejecting them. They have rejected God and turned away from him. So the whole of the Old Testament here, points to the coming of Christ. The church has always existed. It began in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were the first two members. And since then the Lord has been building his church. And he's been calling sinners into the church. Not by birthright. But by faith. And we'll only be true members of the church of Christ. By having faith in the Son of God. So that's the historical context. Secondly, let's look at defining God's hatred. In the Greek of the New Testament, the word hate is the word missio. It's used 42 times and 41 times it is translated hate. Now there's two different strengths of this word hate. The first is hatred to the point of persecution. Luke 21:17, the Saviour said, And ye shall be hated of all men, 
for my name's sake. That is hated, despised to, to the extent that they are willing to kill you. But the second sense of the word hatred is the sense of loving less. Luke 14, verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and so forth, he cannot be my disciple. Now that doesn't mean that we hate our father and mother and our children to the point of persecution. No, it means that we have to love Christ more than we love them. So it's not that we hate them, it's that we don't love them as much as we love Christ. So there's two senses to this word hate. The writer Charles Hodge, he says, The meaning, therefore, is that God preferred one to the other or chose one instead of the other. So that is what God did. He preferred Jacob to Esau. He loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. But we can't be in any doubt about this, that God hates all sin. He particularly hates the sin of unbelief. And that is the sin that Esau was guilty of. That is the sin that his descendants were guilty of. And that is the sin that many people in this world are guilty of, of unbelief. Not believing what the Bible teaches. Not believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is our saviour. So God hates all sin, but he is willing to forgive sin. We can look at Adam and Eve in the garden. God forgive them their sin. The first two members of the church. God forgive the lies of Abraham. He forgive the murder committed by Moses. He forgive the adultery of David. Dear friends, God is a forgiving God who is willing to forgive and pardon sin if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us. God hated the personal sins of Jacob and he hated the sins of Esau. He hated the collective sins of these nations. And the reason God hates sin is because he is holy. He is the holy God. And we will never fully comprehend this verse until we understand the holiness of God. Leviticus 11.44 For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Psalm 11 verse 7 For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Because God is holy, he must punish sin. And God is just in the punishment of all sin. If he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be holy. If God did not have consequences for sin, then God would cease to be a just God. He cannot be ambivalent towards sin. He cannot be neutral. He must either love sin or hate it. And we know that God hates sin. The hatred that God has for sin can be seen at Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't just come into the world and say, I forgive you all your sin. No, he had to do something so that our sins could be forgiven. And what he did was he went to the cross in our place. And he hung on that cross on our behalf. And he took the punishment of God upon his own body and soul so that we could be forgiven. Dear friends, if the Lord Jesus Christ never came and never went to the cross, there would be no forgiveness for us. We would still be in our sin. We would still be lost. We would all be Esau's. So God hates sin. That's sin at Calvary. Esau loved his sin more than God. And he broke covenant with God for the love of his sin. And dear friends, sin is not a light matter. And you and I, we have to choose in our lives. What will we have? Will we have our sin? The pleasures of this world for a short season? Or will we have God for all eternity? 
That is the choice that we are faced with. Thirdly and finally, we'll define God's love. God's love can be understood in three senses. There's mercy, there's grace, and there's love. Mercy is God not dealing with us as we deserve. We deserve punishment for sin. Mercy is God not punishing us for our sin. Grace, by contrast, is God giving to us what we do not deserve. We do not deserve the forgiveness of sins. We do not deserve salvation. It's grace that God gives these things to us. And then there's love. God loves us because he chooses to love us. God is not forced to love us. It is a voluntary choice that God makes. And notice that God's love, his mercy and his grace, they're given to one party, but they're withheld from another. James 1.18, of his own will begat he us. Of his own will, of God's own will, he begat us to himself. Ephesians 1.4, according as he hath chosen us in him. Matthew Henry goes on to say God chooses some and refuses others by his own absolute and sovereign will, dispensing his favour or withholding them as he pleases. God doesn't choose to love Jacob based on any faith that Jacob had or any good works, no. Ephesians 2.9, Paul says it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And God doesn't choose to love Jacob based on any foreseen faith or love in Jacob's heart. Faith is essential. Without faith, it's it's impossible to please God. But God doesn't love us because he foresaw faith in us. His love doesn't depend upon anything we do. He loves us because he chooses to love us. And he gives to us the gift of faith to believe in his son. That's why Paul said, For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, there's some common objections here. Some say that God is unjust because he doesn't save all. He could save all. And some say he's unjust because he doesn't save all. And this accusation against God is addressed by Paul in verse 14 of our chapter. Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. The answer is found in verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God's not under any obligation to save all. Romans 3 verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? God is not unrighteous. He argues in verse 14 that God cannot be unrighteous at all. The real objection is not Why doesn't God save all? The real objection that you and I should be saying is why does God save any? Why does he save any? Why would God look down upon this world of wicked, rebellious sinners and save even one of us? It's the mercy of God that he's willing to do just that. The mystery is not why does God hate Esau? The mystery is why does God love Jacob? R.C. Sproul used the example. He said, Ten men are found guilty by the judge. They're sentenced to death. They're all about to go out and face the death penalty and enter into eternity. But at the last moment, the judge decides to pardon five. So he picks five and he gives them a pardon. 
Is that judge unjust because five guilty men still go to death? Of course not. They deserve death. And so it is that sinners deserve justice from God. But God is merciful that he spares any and that he loves any. We are given the reason why God does this in verse 23 of our chapter. We didn't read it earlier. Verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory. That is why God gives salvation to sinners. That he might make known to us and to the world the riches of his glory. He does it for his own glory. He does it for the exaltation of his own name. That is why we have been saved from sin. Brought to faith in Christ to glorify him. That's what we're called to do. We're coming to a close here this morning. What application can we take from this passage? Well, first of all, we learn that God is sovereign in the disposing of his mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Instead of criticizing God and accusing him of being unkind in hating Esau, we should rejoice that he would love a Jacob like you and me. Secondly, we must ask ourselves that searching question, am I a Jacob? Or am I an Esau? The notable difference between these two is that the Jacobs come to Christ. The Jacobs repent of their sin. The Jacobs embrace the Savior. They ask him for forgiveness and for mercy and he grants it to them. The Esau's turn their back on Christ. And they say, I will not have that man to rule over me. So we must ask ourselves, am I a Jacob or an Esau? And the truth is that Christ will not turn anyone away. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Many are looking a cheering word for their way. Not looking to study the deep things of God. Content with a little knowledge of God. But they don't want too much. Well dear friend can I say in closing the most cheering word. Is to know that you are loved by God. Despite your unworthiness. Whenever we see the Esau's that we could be and that we would be, yet God is willing to make us Jacob's and to love us with that everlasting love and to give to you and I that inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. I trust today that each and every one of us will obey that gospel call to repent of our sin, to believe the gospel and to love God even as he has loved us. Let us pray.